thank you. Praise team, appreciate you and all you've done. His wounds have paid our ransom. We're so grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ, are we not? Amen. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. The year was 1986. I was shopping in Tyler, Texas for a suit. And the salesman assisting me asked the reason I was there for the purchase of the suit. I told him I was a pastor and I needed a new suit for Sundays and for funerals. Now, you realize 1986, folks, most people, most men still wore suits or coats and ties to church. That was just part of it. Uh, it's kind of evolved and changed. You see, I'm still old school and uh, still put the tie and the coat on. But when I, I told him I was a pastor and needed that, he began to questioned me concerning theology. Now, I had just graduated from seminary in December 1984, so I had been out at my new church pastoring out in Van, Texas for about a year, thinking I knew everything as a young pastor, and this little peep squeak, I mean, he was about that tall, says to me, Pastor, how sovereign is your God? While buying a suit. Uh, I didn't know where he was going. I'm like, what do you mean? And he started beginning to explaining to me the doctrines of grace. And so being a good pastor and good politician, I pretended that I knew what he was talking about and, uh, you know, kind of gave some flippant answers. And he said, I tell you what, let me challenge you. Go home and read Romans chapter 9. I did not. What I did was called a friend, and, and uh, I said, hey, this dude asked me about this, his pastor friend, what is this, what is that, this kind of thing. He goes, hey, he, he was talking about Calvinism, and you don't need to bother yourself with that because it's heresy. So I just took his word for it because he was older and pastored a larger church, and I never even took the time to read it. Five years later, I was in another church pastoring in a rural community, and I sought the help of a pastor who had grown his church through what they called cell groups. He had gone from 150 people and went to over 4,000 just using small groups and cell groups. And I thought to myself, there's a need because in our little rural town, we had two churches, the Catholic church that had 2,500 members and the Baptist church that had 50. That was the, that was the makeup of the town. We had a lot of people from around this area began to start coming to church, and I thought, well, you know what? Their work schedules would be be more conducive to them if we had some kind of small group studies in homes. How's that done? So I called this pastor. He's down down in Denton, Texas, about an hour from us. And I said to him, this is what's happening. I heard that you've done this, and I know you're very busy. I don't know if you'd have time for me or not. He said, absolutely meet me tomorrow down at this Chinese restaurant in Denton, and we will talk. So we sat down. We began to talk. He began to share with me, you know, here is my strategy. He said, I came here as the youth pastor, then became the college minister. Then the pastor left, so I started pastoring the church when it had 150 people. And he said, I found for seven years 
every way not to grow a church. And we stayed at 150. He said, until I met with my professor, Howard Hendricks at Dallas Theological, and he said, why don't you do cell groups and I'm gonna challenge you to do something, cancel everything in church except your worship service. Take 12 couples, disciple them for a year. Then what you do is that you release them and they cannot be in your group They have to stay a year, and then you release them. Those 12 couples have to go start 12 different cell groups, and what they have to do is to invite 12 other couples, two of them not church-affiliated. In other words, your neighbors, friends, whatever you know. And they went out and started doing this, and all of a sudden they started finding leaders, and they started doing it, and they started doing it. And all of a sudden, it swelled into 4,000 people. He wrote all this strategy out for me. Here's this guy, PhD. He wrote it out all for me on a paper napkin from the Chinese place. But what he did after our conversation, he says, that's it, go apply it. But before we leave, he said, how sovereign is your God? Same words that I had heard five years earlier. And I confessed to him, I said, you know what? Someone else asked me that. I didn't have a clue. I never was taught any of this. I don't understand it. And he said, okay. He pulled out his little pocket Bible and said, you got an hour? I said, sure. He said, open Romans 9. So he took me verse by verse through this. I listened to it. I said, I I still don't understand it. He said, there's a Mardell bookstore right there across the parking lot. Go in there, buy the book, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. So I did. He said, I'll call you and check on you. So he did. And we began to talk about it. And uh, that book absolutely changed my life doctrinally and changed my perspective on how I read the scriptures until this day but not after a tremendous struggle of great proportion. In other words, that was 1991 when we began this. In 1994, in the midst of this struggle, I went on staff at Sagemont Church, where at the, that very year, unbeknownst to me, Ligonier Ministries, what was founded by R.C. Sproul, was doing a regional conference, and they had contacted Sagemont they needed a large venue to host this conference and it was happening like in six months from the time that I'd gotten there and you know what the topic was chosen by God review of Romans chapter 9 and divine election so these things began to really force me to study what we're going to study in the next few weeks concerning Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. You see, after that conference and me beginning to understand these things, after reading arguments from both sides of the aisle, I had to bow before God and agree that his mercy... He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. But I didn't necessarily like it. I did not like it. It took time to grasp. It took time to understand. And what I'm going to be giving you over the next few weeks, if you haven't come to an understanding of this, it's going to cause a struggle. It took me time to see that God is in the heavens and he does all he pleases. 
And folks, understand that what I'm going to be teaching on, people hate this doctrine. Or let me put it more mildly, people don't like it because it seems unfair. It seems absolutely unfair to them. For example, in 2002, I was sitting at First Baptist Church of Atascacito walking in and talking to my secretary, giving her assignments for the day. And she asked me about what is it that you believe about this election stuff and I told her and she said I just don't find that in the Bible I said would you turn to Romans chapter 9 and so she turned she began to read and I said light your eyes upon verse 11 uh, 10 and 11 this is what it says and not only so but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man our forefather Isaac though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. She read that and she looked at me. She went back down and she looked at this again. She looked at me again. I looked at her and she says, I do not like that. I said, me neither. But the astounding thing is that she said, and I probably won't ever read that again. Now, folks, understand something. That's not unlike a lot of people. It's really not. The reason being is because they don't want to have to deal with this subject because it just doesn't seem fair. But R.C. Sproul told us, and he's written in several of his books, that he had a card on his desk when he was in seminary. This is what it said. It is your duty to believe and to teach what the Bible teaches, not what you would like it to teach. Can I read that again? It is your duty to believe and to teach what the Bible teaches, not what you would like it to teach. And that is our duty as well. So before we go further, what we're going to do today is we're just going to kind of do an overview and then get into the exposition of the scripture next week. But this is going to be an overview of this chapter so that we can understand it. But you need to know that here are the ways that people get around the subject matter at hand. First of all, like I said, they ignore it. The first way they get around it is that they just ignore it. They don't read it. They don't like it. So they do not read it. Folks, it's still true today. We have had people in our church that have left our church over this doctrine. And when talking with them and going to Romans 9 and say, let's point this out, they have told me personally, sitting in my office, I don't read Romans. Okay, why not? Because of passages like this, I don't like it. That's one of the ways they just ignore it. You know, sometimes these people are like this, not here, but there's other people that say, you know what, just give me Jesus. That's all I need. I don't need any doctrine. But when you get Jesus, guess what you get? A whole load of doctrine. You know, that's what it is. So we have people who just ignore it, don't read it. There's also those who believe that Paul is speaking about nations, not individuals. In other words, going back to Romans 13, it says, as, I, as it is written, Jacob I love, Esau I hated. Basically, they're saying God is talking about nations that will receive particular 
blessings. And we understand that there are two individuals he points out and from Jacob there's Israel from from Esau there's the Arab nations and so they're saying God is talking about nations but however he names individuals and if you think about it logically are not nations made of individuals so therefore when you have that argument which we'll get into in more specific ways in the next couple of weeks we'll see he's not speaking just about nations a third way that people approach this is say that some uh, people will say Romans 9 is about selection of individuals for temporal blessings. In other words, chapter 9 doesn't have anything to do with salvation. However, if that were the case, then chapter 8 falls to the ground. Because if you look back to chapter 8 and you look at verse 29 through 30... It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If they were just temporal blessings, then all these blessings would not be to them because he's predestined, he's called them, he's justified them, he's glorified them. That goes away if that's the way you view Romans chapter 9. The last one is this, that God looks down the corridor of time and he knows in advance how people respond when they hear the gospel. That means basically when you're talking to people in that regards, that means that God does not know how people will choose or respond until he looks down somewhere and sees them and oh, they're going to choose me, therefore... I'm going to choose them. As one preacher had said in a conference that I attended, I don't know about this election thing, but all I do is I nominate them and God elects them. I nominate them because I share the gospel with them, then God elects them. No, we're going to find out that's not what this means. The implication that if God looks down to see who is believing, the indication, the implication is this, that God doesn't know something before he looks down that, that tunnel of time. And if God doesn't know something beforehand, he doesn't know, that means God is not all-knowing, therefore he would not be God. We'll talk about that and get into understanding this a little bit later. So we will see this and understand this, folks. Here's a precursor. Paul uses the term purpose and he uses the word calls Paul is referring to God God's purpose God's calling he is the one who does the electing the individuals were not elected based on what they do it was based on what God does so when we get into this section and we understand it this is really a section between 9 and 11 that's all dealing with some questions that we have to understand and it's foundational to the doctrine of salvation. But really, it's not the total theme of Romans 9, 10, and 11. What is the theme of this scripture passage? Is, has God's promises failed? Has God's promises failed? Read with me just real quickly. We'll just kind of read through this. Uh, 
for the first six verses. It says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Here is what is happening, just real quickly, just as an overview to this chapter, so that we can understand where we are going. Paul is pointing out, he is saying, I have anguish because Israel is accursed. Israel has been cut off from God. But if they have been cut off, why does the Bible say that they are his chosen nation? If they've been cut off and they've been accursed, guess what? Then God's word has failed. All these Israelites are going to go to hell because God's word was not true. God was not faithful in his promise. He did not do what he said he was going to do and that was to preserve Israel. This is what the question is at hand and it is in front of us. We need to understand that, that Paul is trying to explain all the way through chapters one through eight, he is explaining the salvation to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And yet he was saying to them, look, our brethren have been accursed and have been cut off from Christ. But his promise, now he gets to chapter 9, his promise has not failed. And I know that some people are going to look at that as, as he's writing this. He's writing it because some people are saying it looks as if it has failed. You are blasting the Jews all through this letter that you've sent to us. But he's trying to tell them, no, here's the deal. God's promise has not failed whatsoever. And so... He says in chapter 6, he says, not all who are descended, I mean in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So what he does then is begin to formulate how God's word has not failed, all the way from chapter 9, all the way to the end of chapter 11. So what is topics that are going to, we're going to go through and we're going to understand and we're going to look at? He begins to talk about divine election. We've talked about that. We just read those scripture verses in 9 through 13. So that's part of the topic that he is going to say. It's there we have to deal with it. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, because of him who calls, she was told the elder would serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I have hated. So we are going to look at that purpose of election, divine election. Why is it? it? What's happening here? We're also going to see that Paul deals with the human will. Look at verse 16. This is where people will get confused when it concerns the doctrines of grace. It says, so then he has mercy, or 16. So it depends not on human will, 
or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So we began to see, began to understand, and we will understand as we get into it, what part does the human will play in this? Does it mean that God overrides my will? Does it mean that I can override the will of God? What does that mean? We will talk about that as we get into that. But we need to understand this is the very thing that the Apostle John said, John chapter 1. He says this, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we find that even more reiterated when Nicodemus talks to Jesus. Nicodemus comes and talks to him and Jesus says, you've got to be born of the Spirit, water and of the Spirit. And the Spirit blows wherever it wills, is what Jesus says. So John is saying, you were born out of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What part does that play? We'll learn about that. We'll understand it. If you go to verse 18, we will see and talk about the sovereign choice of God. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. We want to talk about the hardening of the heart by the Lord God. Some people talk about this as double predestination. We want to talk about that. Don't let that term scare you. So it's something that's within this chapter. We need to know and understand what that means. We also want to deal with where Paul deals with this, verses 14 and verses 19, the accusations of humans to the sovereign choice of God. Now, we've just read it. He has mercy. We understand that on whomever he wills. But verse 19 says this, you will say to me then, this is Paul anticipating the response to what he's writing to the Romans. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But in verse 20, he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? So what we see is one of the things of concerning this divine election, this believing that God chooses his own, we need to understand that humans naturally rebel against us and begin to blame God. That is not fair. Now, I've told you before where a mother came to my office and she says, I can't believe you. You cannot tell me that my three children won't go to heaven based on your doctrine. I said, can you? And she said, yes, because we're going to teach them all this. Well, it's wonderful, great. I pray that they would, but can you tell me for certain? And she said, no, I don't like that because anything less than that is just unfair. Just unfair. Basically, what she was saying was this. God is obliged to save everyone. God is obliged to save everyone. We'll talk about that. Is he or is he not? 
What we need to understand, too, is if Paul is answering the question, is God unfaithful to his promise or is he faithful? We're going to talk about the remnant that is left. Look at verse 27, if you would. He comes down to this conclusion, verse 27. He says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, not all of Israel, he mentions that in verse 6, not all of Israel belongs to Israel. In other words, here's this chosen nation, but within that chosen nation, individuals have been saved for salvation and righteousness and for heaven's glory. We'll talk about that and what does that mean? Especially when he says, and finally all Israel will be saved. Because he mentions that in chapter 11. We'll talk about that. But again, as you look at verse 32, why haven't the Jewish people come to faith? Notice what it says. Well, let's start in verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law why here he answers this because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written behold I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling a rock of offense and whoever believes in me will not be put to shame why Paul preached elsewhere this gospel that we preach is an offense to those who are perishing it is a stumbling block why didn't the Jews come to faith we'll talk about that and understand that and look at it because Paul begins to answer it so here's my challenge to you as a congregation as I said we're not going to get into everything all at once that's just too much to swallow but next week we'll hit the first six verses and begin to understand it more why does he have great sorrow why does he have this anguish in his heart we'll talk about those things next week but my challenge is this take chapter 9 and 10 and 11 and read it this week read it read chapter 9 at least twice before you come back read it twice so that you can understand it and look at it and begin to follow along because honestly some of you let me put it in a country expression we about to get in the weeds okay but we need to be there to get to the other side to be able to see it plow through it and look at it and to understand it and to negate the fact especially next week negate the fact that people believe that those of us who believe in the doctrine of election are not concerned for the lost 
and that we should never share the gospel because God knows who he's called anyway, so it's no big deal. He's going to save them no matter what. We just need to sit on the premises instead of standing on the promises. We'll talk about that next week. So read it, read it, read it. And let's let it absorb us uh, into us because what it's going to do, I know because I've experienced this in my life, when these doctrines dawned upon me by the grace of the Lord, it made me bow in worship to our Heavenly Father. Not taking an elitist attitude that I was, quote, unquote, one of the elect. No, it, it caused me to bow and to worship before God because I had to say honestly, why would he take a sinner like me and give me grace? That's what it did for me. That's what I want it to do for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us your word, although it, it is hard sometimes, Lord. It's hard to believe and hard to accept, but Lord, I pray that you would work it in us so that we would bow before you and in your sovereignty and proclaim that you are the great God of overall and that you are in the heavens and you do as you please. So, Father, I pray that you prepare our hearts as we receive this word. I pray for this congregation, Lord, that as, you, as they read and they begin to delve into it, O oh Lord, Lord, if you would do your work, you would change hearts, but you would also cause hearts to rejoice in what you have done. Lord, always let us be God-centered, not man-centered. Help us throughout this year to absorb the rich, deep blessings that you have for us in your word. Lord, and bless this congregation throughout this week and the weeks to come. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.